Hey there, you're listening to Ghost Notes and Friends, the podcast where we talk about music inside and out with friends. My name's Noah, you probably know me better as Polyphonic. And I'm Corey, and you probably know me as 12-Tone. And today I'm super excited. We have a really cool guest. Do you want to introduce yourself? Sure. Hi, everybody. I'm Mike. Um, I'm Mike Worth. I'm a music producer from New York City. I also make music production tutorials on YouTube, and I work for Nebula on the video production side. And what was it that you uh, wanted to talk to us about today, Mike? Yeah, so today I thought we'd talk about a sort of spicy topic of music technology. And what I mean by that is things like auto-tune and Melodyne, vocal tuning, and things like guitar plugins replacing recording of actual guitar amplifiers, and drum software replacing the need to record drums in a big studio. These kinds of things have always been really fascinating to me. The way that they make music production easier, but also in the way that they kind of stir up the pot in being non-traditional. Uh, yeah. Yeah, well, and I think one of the things you mentioned when we were talking about topics that I was really interested in is sort of the, the question around which of these technologies are sort of, quote unquote, allowed to be used by, you know, the, the detractors and which ones aren't. Because, like, fundamentally... There's not that much different between running your voice uh, through a piece of technology to make it sound better and running a guitar through a distortion pedal, right? Like everything that we do in recording music is some form of technology designed to create some sound output. So there's a there's a weird kind of cultural baggage around certain ones. And I think that you mentioned that in the topic, and I think that's a really interesting place to start. Yeah, that's a really good point, especially like with, with talking about guitars and hardware effects processors, like guitar yeah. pedals. It's kind of like, where do you draw the line, right? Like, where is it too much? You could take a guitar, plug it straight into your amplifier, and that's going to sound a certain way. And then we can put tons of different effects pedals in front of it. And those are going to alter the sound to the point where it sounds, you know, like a completely different sound. You, you mentioned distortion. That's not what guitars sound like when you plug them straight into the amplifier. And the same is true for vocals. You know, we could uh, record vocals in a recording booth or, you know, like a heavily sound treated room. So we have this nice, uh, nice crystal clear, but sort of dead sound. And then we'll use effects like reverb and delays and, and take it out of that room. So that's not technically real, we, we might put this voice in a cathedral, right? But we didn't record it there. So is that yeah. much different using something like autotune to continue to improve on or alter that sound? Yeah, I mean, an interesting example that I've been thinking about recently, because I recently did a video about In the Air Tonight, uh, is gated reverb, where this is like a, a very specific production technique that was Collins and Padgham developed that put the mic in a specific place and treated the mic in specific ways to sort of capture the reverb of the room. Later producers realized they could do basically the same thing by just adding a reverb effect. And it's still it's still gated reverb either way, but there's this sort of conceptual difference between whether you did it with a real room or whether you did it by pressing. So it wasn't pressing buttons on a computer back in the 80s. It was more complicated than that. But like that same sort of idea of like running it through some technological process versus actually doing a thing that happened live. Right. Yeah. And there's so many advantages to doing it that way. Um, for example, like in a live recording, the the microphone across the room is picking up the sound of the the drum set as a whole. So like when you record drums, you'll yeah. put, you know, microphones on each individual drum nice and close. But 
then you put the microphones across the room for that big room sound. But that's going to have all of the cymbals and, you know, every piece of the drum kit bleeding into those microphones. So you might want to trigger yeah. that gate and you get this like washy yeah. splash from the cymbals as well. So there's like so many benefits to doing that with a gated reverb that, you you, you know, you, you can get around some of those cymbal sounds coming through yeah. the room mics. Yeah, it's definitely like one of the things that made it so appealing on In the Air Tonight was that he wasn't playing cymbals. Like that wasn't a part of the drum beat. But then, you know, later, like glam metal bands were trying to do like shotgun snare stuff and they still wanted a ride or whatever and like or a crash certainly they loved their crash symbols yeah. and so who doesn't you know you, but yeah, exactly but you, you can't do a simple like gated reverb treatment of a snare like you say if you're also capturing the crash symbol on the same mic right and there's i don't know it reminds me and i might have told this story on ghost notes before but like I was talking back in college with one of the um, engineering teachers. And one of the things he was saying was like, he had like this 10 week course on like introduction to mixing. And what he would do was he would spend the first eight weeks of it. He would give people a specific like set of tracks and have them figure out all of the ways to make it sound better and how to use all of these tools to fix everything in the thing. And then for the last two weeks, he would just give them a new set of tracks that were mic'd better and recorded better in the first place, show them just how much easier it was if you just had the all of the things you needed done correctly in the first place, as opposed to trying to go in and fix each individual component. Like, okay, well, we'll EQ out this one little thing and we'll, you know. Yeah, yeah. And trying to capture like, yeah, as much as you can in the room and then taking that and improving it as opposed to trying to cover things up. Yeah. That's so interesting. And I think that applies on a lot of different levels. Um, you know, kind of going back to vocal tuning, if you spend a lot of your, you know, early music production career working with singers that maybe need a lot of help, you can kind of get used to, yeah. you know, having to go in and fix everything. And then you work with a singer who's who's, you know, either, you know, a trained singer who's or just has great pitch. And yeah, you have to teach yourself to really think about like listen first in a way, you know what I mean? Um, yeah. Like if you just pull it up and start clicking away, you can really quickly make it overdone. And it takes yeah. some time to kind of like pull back and say, all right, well, like which notes actually sound out of tune? Like if I don't need to fix everything, which notes do I need to fix? And you'll get much cleaner results. But yeah, it's, it sometimes takes a minute to take that step back and, and yeah. use your ears. Well, and I imagine there's got to be like a degrees thing when you get really into the nitty gritty where it's like, how many degrees off do I need to really fix? And how much is just sort of, you know, the slight character or slight bend of the vocalist's voice and this moment or stuff like that. Like, I feel like there's, you end up having to make a lot of sort of executive calls there, I'd imagine. A hundred percent. Yeah. What I've found works for me personally is if I have the, Melodyne, which is a, you know, it's one of the, the leading vocal yeah. tuning software. If I have that window yeah. open. It's the thing most people mean when they say auto-tune. Like auto-tune is an actual thing, right. but I think most people are thinking when they talk, oh, they auto-tuned the vocals, they usually mean Melodyne. Yeah, yeah. If I have that window open while I'm working, I'm just, uh, my brain shuts off and I'm just clicking and trying to fix too many things. So yeah. I, I, yeah. I get much better and and no, like you were saying, like, where to make that decision to either like fix it or leave it. If I close my eyes and just take a notepad out and just listen to the song and be like, okay, you know, second verse, these are the words that that stood out. 
you know, and then I'll yeah. be able to sort of objectively fix those without like overdoing it. Yeah, there's also related to that a lot of value in imperfection to a lot of these things. I think for most listeners, depending on the style of like something super electronic, you might want like really inhuman precision. But for something like rock, the sort of there's a value to it sounding like a human played it. And so there's a value in not overcorrecting, even if that would make it technically more correct. Like there's, you know, the fact that the voice might be a little flat throughout this section, as long as it's not so flat that it's like dissonant and rubbing against the notes, like other notes in the arrangement that it's not supposed to rub against, that probably sounds cool. And like, similarly, you have this thing where, you know, programmed drums will often, they have systems that will just randomly push them one way or another a little bit just so that they're not perfectly metronomic, just so that it sounds like there's a little fluctuation, which you would naturally get if an actual human drummer had played those drums. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's really interesting because I think the like, the sort of desire there for like, I think that's where a lot of the kind of hate of autotune comes from. Right. Like the the yeah. idea that, you, you know, there's a there's a perceived lack of authenticity. Right. There's a perceived, oh, yeah. you know, and, and often that comes with more laughable, but very frequent accusation that, oh, you know, this person doesn't have any talent. They're just using auto tune yeah. for everything when it's like, I mean, did the Beatles not have any talent? Because one of the Beatles biggest sort of revolutions to music was all of the stuff that they did in the studio. They were one of the first bands to yeah. really use the studio as an instrument, right? Oh, yeah. That is such a good point about the sort of public deception of autotune uh, that you can just take somebody with no talent and throw autotune on. I mean, some of my favorite singers to tune are singers that almost don't need it. You know what I mean? And it's like the genre depending, yeah. Yeah. of course. But if you take someone who just like has all of the character, all of the qualities, you know, great tone, all the things that, that like go into a great vocal performance and then tune them that little bit of extra help that they might need, uh, you yeah. know, just to like polish up the the product being the recording, it's it's beautiful. It takes somebody, you know, who doesn't have any of those qualities and tune them and you, you end up with like, you know, it could sound like, uh, like auto-tune the news, you know, like just taking, yeah. you know, yeah. voices and putting <laughs> them in tune doesn't make somebody a good singer. No. There is an aesthetic value to that often, but, you know, it, it really just depends what you're trying for. Because like someone like, you know, like Kanye and Bon Iver and... Uh, um, T-Pain, I think. Yeah. Pardon? I was going to say T-Pain as an example of someone who... Yes, that's who I was thinking of. Yeah, yeah. Could sing extremely well. Like, you look up live acoustic performances of T-Pain, he crushes it. But he's also, like, at least his early stuff, I don't know as much about what he's been doing recently, but his early stuff was so drenched in auto-tune oh, yeah. as an aesthetic, as as an intentional choice. Yeah, well, he, he kind of like, he's kind of like the... The inventor of the auto-tune aesthetic, right? Um, sort of. Uh, the popularizer of in the modern context. I believe was the one that was... I'm blanking off of that. It was Madonna or Cher. I think it was Cher, but, but I remember watching an interview with T-Pain where... And I'm going to blank on, on who this person was, but he was, get, he, he was getting letters from huge, huge singers just you know telling him he ruined music. 
Um, yeah. So he, yeah, he definitely yeah. Uh, made that sound popular. Yeah. Yeah. No, he, yeah, he was a huge part of sort of the 2000s era oversaturation of it, honestly. Like looking back, I think a lot of really cool stuff happened with it. Like I don't, I don't have any issue with it as a thing. It definitely got used by a lot of people who weren't necessarily doing the most interesting things with it. But that's true of any technology. Yeah. That's just sort of music. I think it's a really interesting comparison to like gated drums, right? Like, you know, like Kate yep. Bush's use of gated drums is absolutely incredible. And it's, you know, she creates these ethereal sound palettes with them. But gated drums are one of the sort of famous obnoxious earmarkers of you know, the indulgences of 80s production, right? Yeah. Yeah, which to be fair, I also think is wrong. Yes. I, I love a good shotgun snare. Yeah. But, like, but yeah, I, I think it also like, to a point that like Mike was making earlier about singers who don't really need it. And, you know, this is true of like any sort of fixing technique, whether that's like beat doctor or whatever. But like, as a trained singer, as someone who at one point in my life was looking at getting into session singing work, one of the big things that pitch correction does is it, it doesn't take bad singers and make them good. It takes good singers and saves them a lot of time. That is a great way to put it. Yeah. Cause like, you know, Mike was saying like, he'll listen to a thing and be like, this one word is like 20 cents flat. Yeah. And am I going to make you record the entire verse just to fix that? What if you screw up another wor one word? Like it's so much easier to open it up and bump the thing and then you can move on to the next song. Well, and I think that that's like so much of I think a lot of people from the outside looking in don't realize that, y you know, there's there's a real allusion to the act of recording basically ever since yeah. multi-track recording was invented. Right. You know, ever since multi-tracks, it's yeah. it's always, you know, you know, I kind of think of it like like photography where you know, photography, you're working with a different, you know, lens than the human eye. So a good photographer isn't trying to capture what you're seeing. A good photographer is trying to capture the essence of sort of what it feels like yeah. to look at whatever you're looking at. And I, I think in my book, in the same, in my mind, like the, the produce, a good producer or a good mixer is trying to capture what it feels like to be in the room with that performer not necessarily, yeah. you know, the true to life thing, because it's just it, it's, you know, mics are such vastly different technologies than your ears. So it's never going to yeah. be a one to one. Yeah, that's such a good point. And I, I love the reference about cameras. No one looks at a photo and, you know, especially just the everyday person looks at a photo and goes, yeah, but that's edited. Like it, you look at yeah. a picture and it makes you feel a certain <laughs> way. And of course it's edited, but that's kind of the point. It's like, yeah. especially as someone who now, you know, I, I, in the last few years have transitioned more into video production than doing music production full time. Yeah. And you start to look at things differently. And, and it's, it is a little bit less of taking photos or videos of, of what you see, but you're taking photos and videos of what you can turn that into in a way. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. It's even something as simple as like color grading. Yeah. Where I don't have a camera that can show you exactly what my eyes are seeing. I have a camera that can show you the thing it's seeing and I have to tell it like, oh no, the light's a little blue and my brain is adjusting for that and you don't know how to do that. Or, oh, the light's a little orange or whatever. Or I can make those decisions 
in post as well and make my blacks blacker than they might be in real life because it looks better. Another example of this sort of back in music, I recently did a video about like the concept of heaviness in metal. And one of the things that kept coming up is that most modern metal productions will take a recorded drum and layer additional drum samples on top of it to help that punch through. And so you're hearing a lot more than the one snare the dude actually hit, but it makes it feel more like you are hearing that snare. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, it's funny. I worked on mostly, uh, mostly two genres when I was doing music full time, and it was pop and metal. <laughs> and all of my, all of the pop <laughs> artists I work with were always so surprised when they heard that, like, man, you after do, my own heart. Yeah, <laughs> like, you do pop and metal. It's such a, and the pop I was doing was like almost theater based. So it was, it was a very, very, you know, opposing genres from, from theater pop to, to metal. Yeah. Um, but the crossovers, I'll tell that to Evanescence. <laughs> yeah. Right. The crossovers in production techniques, I think are what drew me to both of those things. How do you get that larger than life yeah. sound? When you stand in the room next to a drummer, drums are loud. I mean, they, they just, yeah, they're going to move you when you, when you stand yeah. in that room, they're hard to capture and give that yeah. same they're hard to capture and give you that same feeling like standing in the room and layering drum samples when you were talking about gated reverb on the snares, that's that's all I was thinking about is like taking it a step further. What I'll do a lot of times is take a snare drum and layer it with room samples. And it could be from a library that I've purchased, or it can even be if it was like a recorded drum set that I was, you know, with a band or something, that I took samples of just yeah. the snare drum, you know, make the drummer hit it eight different times at different velocities, and we'll record a, a sample of that snare drum. And we'll layer that in later. So it's not the the drum that he hit exactly for that performance. It's, you know, extra, uh, you know, big, huge snare drums that we can trigger later. And it helps to make that yeah. sound like how it feels when you're standing in the room. Yeah. But like, like the camera thing, it's not the drum that he hit, but it's the drum that you would have heard. Yeah, exactly. That's a great way to put it. One of the sort of divides where people have issues, you know, you know, I think there's a clear, people seem to be very comfortable with any sort of analog musical technology and i don't know if it's just because you know people have rose tinted glasses and nostalgia vision about the past um i mean i'm and th this is coming as someone who like like i'm a i'm a like a bit of an analog audiophile i love analog technology M my favorite sounding albums are some of the hi-fi stuff recorded in the late 70s but at the end of the day like i think there's this weird there's this weird idea where something loses value as soon as it becomes digital in the music world. And it's like, no, like these people yeah. like the Beatles, these people like Stevie Wonder, Marvin Gaye, these artists were interested in whatever was cutting edge technology in the time. Stevie Wonder would absolutely be using any like like a whole suite of digital technology if he was making his classical period right now and you know he oh, still yeah. does record music yeah. and i'm sure he still does use all all of these suites of digital technology yeah i mean i wonder like and i i genuinely don't know the answer to this but you mentioned sort of multi-track recording as the beginning of where people were able to manipulate sound in ways that weren't what you would hear in the room and i wonder like if there was any backlash to that like if that was a thing that like people who were really used to this sort of classic, you set up one mic and everyone sings and plays around it style 
We're like, oh no, that's going to ruin things. <laughs> it's not like there's no differences between that and what you can do with a good DAW today. Like there, there's some qualitative differences between those, but... To be clear to any listeners, uh, DAW is a digital audio workstation in case if you missed what that is. Oh yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. I probably should not have just thrown that term <laughs> in there. But, uh, but yeah, like the things you can do with a computer today are way beyond that. And, you know, there are, it's not that there's a one-to-one -one equivalence between them in terms of whatever moral or artistic weight we want to apply. It still very much goes back at least that far, like potentially back to the microphone. Yeah. The invention of recording sound fundamentally changed. And I, that one, I would not be surprised at all to learn that there was like, at least in some corners, societal pushback toward the idea that you should record music. Oh, absolutely. In in early yeah. jazz scenes, a lot of early jazz artists would not let themselves be recorded because then people would cop their style and would, you know, yeah. know how they did it. It would, recording kind of destroyed, uh, in a lot of these people's eyes, the whole mystique. Yeah. Which makes a lot of sense given just how improvisational jazz is. Yeah. Jazz is a lot of things. I'm mostly talking about like early bebop and that, that sort of era of things is very much not meant to be a fixed work. It's meant to be an experience that you have once. Yeah. And then you have a different experience next time. And so it makes a lot of sense that that scene would not be a fan of the idea of you hearing this solo again. Yeah. Yeah, I could say that I, I definitely prefer listening to jazz in a live situation than I do to say, like, throw on yeah. something that's, you know, recorded already. And that could just be like the experience that goes along with it, you know? Yeah, it's about the experience, partly. Like, I mean, we're getting, we're diverging a little off topic now, too. But I think <laughs> that's one of the interesting things about, like, like a lot of the best jazz records, and this kind of does get us back into recording technology a little yeah. bit. A lot of the best jazz records are the Blue Note records, which are recorded like live in studio, right? Like they're recorded in Van Gelder studio. Yeah. Rudy Van Gelder was like famously protective of his recording techniques to the point that like he, nobody to this day still knows how Van Gelder was able to, you know, how he mic'd his horns and stuff like that, because it was just a, yeah. a, a sheer industry secret. And I think, you know, I think it's it's an interesting place now. I mean, maybe that's something I'd, I'd be curious to hear from you, uh, Mike, where I feel like there's just a lot more of a culture of sort of sharing techniques in in generally the artistic world right now but you know do you do you ever worry when you're working on stuff do you have your secret sauce that you wouldn't want anyone to know or is it more just you know the more the more information out there the better it is for everyone and if so what is it <laughs> i would say when i was younger and cockier and thought yeah. that that i knew everything <laughs> and i had all these secrets that I was more protective over things like even, you know, if I wrapped up a, a session or an album with an artist and I had a, a final mix session, uh, sharing Pro Tools sessions, like handing those things off, I, you know, it'd be like, well, my my roadmap is here. If that like anyone could pull this open and, and recreate my mix and do I want that out there? Um, I don't know that I think that anymore, especially, I mean, like I, I actually love, you know, sharing uh, and educating and that's what my whole YouTube channel is really is just like, yeah. Yeah. if I have any secrets, I'm throwing it out there. Um, 
<laughs> but I, I just think that in anything creative, you can share techniques, but ultimately it comes down to the decisions you make and any other person is going to make a thousand other decisions. And then they all affect each other. How you mix the drums is going to affect the way you balance the vocals at the, you know, and so, yeah, not, not really too worried about any of that. And I think that it's, it's come a long way in terms of, uh, you know, what people are willing to, you know, trade secrets and, and mic positioning and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. I think that's like a really good perspective and really good advice for a lot of aspects of music. Like I know, I remember one of my, one of the guitar teachers at my old school was telling a story where like people would come up to him at gigs and be like, oh, your guitar sounds so cool. Like, how do you get that tone? What's, what's the rundown? <laughs> like, what is your, what is your gear? And he would just like hand them his guitar and be like, oh, here, it play yeah. it. And try and sound like I did with exactly the setup I used. And, you know, they didn't, they sounded different. You know, they didn't necessarily sound better or worse, but they didn't sound like him. And this is like, who is, I forget who it is, but some big guitar, I want to say Steve Vai, I could be wrong on that. I was talking about having that experience meeting Brian May, mm-hmm. where, you know, Brian May has like such a famously distinctive guitar tone. And he just walked uh, this other person, I'm just going to say Steve Vai, he just walked Steve through his exact setup. It was like, here's what I do. Here's everything. Here's my guitar. Play it. And he could not figure out how to sound like Brian May. Because at the end of the day, the secret sauce wasn't how he set his reverb or like where the gain was or anything like that. It was being Brian May. It was the degree in astrophysics. (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. You know, it's funny with these like sort of technical things. I I was reading a great interview with David Gilmore once where and it just shows you how sort of different these people are and how how different artists those differences end up affecting the final product because like you know there's so many sort of like super technical guitarists who have who tinker with their setups to create the most elaborate thing and there's this interview with david gilmore about how he gets his tone and he's like i don't know i just fiddle around with the knobs until it sounds good (laughs) (laughs) yeah i think that simplicity especially with guitars i mean i what got me into recording music was playing music and when i was playing often I remember having really elaborate setups, like the the floorboard pedals and all the, you know, everything was, was yeah. how many different cables and going in and out of the amps and effects returns and all this and that. And I guess if you're a touring musician, like that's fine, you remember it. But I just remember being in the in the flow. If I had a few gigs back to back, my complex setups were were great. But if I had to take like two months where I wasn't playing and then try and put my pedal board back together <laughs> for the next gig, I was like, what was I thinking? Like I. I you know, how do I even get the sound from the guitar to the amp? Yeah. And and I just remember downsizing and, and it's just been so much easier with like four pedals. <laughs> That's it. I relate to that so hard. Every now and then I'll watch like an old video and be like, how did I get that look? What was I doing? You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I also, like, I, I have that and I also like have that where I'll like go back and like in my mind, it was like, oh, that was so cool. And then I'll go back and actually watch the video oh, again. Yeah. And it'll be like, it's just that my standards were lower at the time. <laughs> and I like, I go back and it's, it's not like there's things that I used to be like, oh, I used to be able to draw this so well. Why can't I do it anymore? And then I go back and watch old videos. It's like, oh, I never could. I just didn't know that. Yeah. <laughs> and my, my current ones are actually way better. And like, similarly, you know, you, you have all of this 
you put so much effort into that like pedal board and that tone that it feels like it should be really good. Like you say, you cut down to like four pedals and really learn how to use them really effectively. And you wind up with a tone that sounds a lot better, even though at the time it felt like what you were doing would have to be so much better because there were so many more options. Right, right. I feel like in some ways, like you, you almost have to go there and come back. Like the yeah, the knowledge yeah. I gained from, you know, turning a hundred knobs, let me be really intentional when I only had, you know, three or four. Yeah. It's just the, you know, you kind of, you come back from it with this knowledge of, of how to get the sound you're looking for in a simpler way. And it's just yeah. easier to do, easier to recreate. And in a lot of ways, the, the sound was better. Yeah, I this, I told this story in a video, I think. I don't think on Ghost Notes, but like back in, for like my senior jury in college, uh, I had to do this arranging piece where I had to arrange, a, like do my own version of a song. And I had a friend who could sing in like the coloratura range, which is a really, really high soprano. Ooh. And so for the final chorus, I wanted to use that because she was singing backgrounds for me. And I wound up writing this really complicated rhythmically intricate part that ran around in that like super high register that like fundamentally she couldn't sing like she could hit <laughs> she could sing in that register just fine but the line was way too complicated like I just I wanted to show that I could do this really complicated thing I'm to, at this point like I'm happy that I don't actually have a recording of that performance <laughs> because that means in my mind I can still think that chorus worked when I'm pretty sure that like, hey, I'm pretty sure she didn't actually sing the thing I wrote. I think she just wrote her own simpler version, <laughs> which is probably right, probably the correct thing to do. But like B, if she was singing what I wrote, it would have been distracting. I, I can still feel like I did a good job because I'm not going back and listening to this <laughs> thing that's like, oh no, that was, whoops, my bad, <laughs> that one. But like, uh, but yeah, I think similarly with, with a lot of the technological stuff, it it can be very easy to go overboard. And like you say, I think you sort of have to see what overboard looks like. Mm -hmm. It's really hard to find that line from below. But once you go over it and then you take a step back and hear it, it's very easy to be like, nope, too much. Well, <laughs> this needs to come back. <laughs> I think there's one of my all-time sort of favorite quotes about creativity is there's an Orson Welles quote that goes, the absence of limitations is the enemy of art. And I think it's one yeah. of the things where, kind of like you were talking about, Mike, with sort of using Melodyne, originally starting to use it for everything and going out. Like, I think with a lot of this technological stuff, I think that there's a lot of people who, you know, digital technology gives you like near limitless capabilities. And sometimes you got to learn how to impose your own limits on that stuff to create something that is sort of a richer sound or that, you know, whatever your chosen medium is. Like, I think, I think like Corey was saying, like, you know, yeah. sometimes you need to go over the top and explore a lot of really crazy stuff in order to realize, oh, wait, no, but actually, you know, n now I can return to a simpler process, but have the knowledge that I acquired from yeah. doing this complex stuff. And the... I, I know what happens when I turn this dial yeah, way too high. Exactly. Yeah. You got to take it to 11 and then realize you only needed about yeah. six. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. That, that, you know, Corey, like you were saying before with, uh, when talking about multi-tracks and, um, you know, was there any pushback when that first became a thing? Um, I don't know if that's, 
if if that was a thing, you know, from from only having one mic to being able to have, you know, up to uh, I know it kind of moved from like you know zero to twenty four, and then we had forty eight, and then with Pro Tools yeah. uh, or you know digital audio workstations, the the jump to almost infinite tracks. Uh, yeah. Noah, like you said, with that quote, like the lack of limitation there. I've heard definitely, uh, definitely from some, you know, some producers when I was coming up and working in studios, uh, you know, talking about the time before Pro Tools when you had 24 tracks and how do you record a whole band with 24 tracks? Um, and you had to make decisions and now you almost don't. You can record 18 of those tracks on just the drums if you want to, you know, and you, yeah. can, <laughs> you can just keep on going and going and and you don't have to make those decisions. You can save them for later, save them for someone else. Maybe there's a different <laughs> different mixing engineer on the project that you'll pass off those decisions to, you yeah. know, or, or that's you later or something, you know? Yeah. But I've, def- I've heard of engineers like imposing that artificially of like, I'm not going over 24 tracks or whatever the number is just to force them to make those decisions. Mm-hmm. Because like you say, like I can put a hundred mics in a drum room uh, like and drum studio rather and each one of them will sound a little different and i can once i have those i can decide what i want to do with literally 100 tracks of drums <laughs> yeah. but like at, at some point you get this really strong diminishing returns where it's better to force yourself to pick which drum drum mics you actually want and just use those i talk frequently about the limitations imposed by the vinyl record, which yeah. essentially allows for 40 to 45-ish minutes of runtime. If you really want to compress sound, you can go uh, up a bit more. But in general, like I think that there, there are very few albums that actually need more than that. And a lot of albums are... Be, you know, as as artifacts are a lot stronger because of the limits imposed by that technology. So I always love it when even, you know, even now are artists more and more with the vinyl resurgent artists who are recording yeah. stuff digitally are releasing it for streaming are kind of keeping stuff to around 40 minutes because, you know, that's a that's a limitation that really forces you to look and be like, yeah. Okay, well, I got to leave one of these songs on the cutting room floor. Which one of these is a stronger song? And it forces you to, you know, as they say in writing, it forces you to kill your darlings, right? Yeah. I think a related limitation, and this is maybe a stretch to call this a technological limitation, but it is a limitation that was solved technologically, is that at that point, you know, back in like the 40s or whatever, if you wanted to add an extra part, you had to get another person to play it. Uh, yeah. yeah. You don't, like, these days you can do that in Logic or whatever. You can just pull up and add a MIDI guitar and like digital instruments are really good these days. Like it's, if you do it well, if you, like, if you have a good library and you set the things right, it's really hard to tell if that's, you know, is real people or a really good sample library. It's also like never been easier to multi-track yourself as well. You know, if you own a couple instruments. And that's, I think, sort of transition because we've been on limitations for a while. And I think it's a really important point. But I also want to talk about opportunities. And I think that's a really good segue there. Because like when you talk about multi-tracking yourself, like you can do that in a studio and layer. But like 
the thing that comes to mind for me, and I think probably for a lot of people, those like single person loop pedal cover thing, or not necessarily covers, but songs, uh, where one person will just, you'll see them building the loop over yeah. and over again because they just have to play the thing once and then they can play the next thing. And Tosh Sultana is a great example for that. They're incredible. Yes. Uh, and and like I said, I don't, I don't want to like just completely imply that, you know, all of this is you have to be super careful to not overuse the technology because you can overuse the technology like crazy and it'll still work if you're overusing it in ways that are interesting. Yes, absolutely. And it, it does provide so many opportunities. When I was producing music full time over, I would say a four year period, I worked with a lot of singer songwriters, solo artists, and a lot of the music was intended to sound like a band arrangement, you know, traditional guitars, bass, drums, yeah. singer. The only times that I ever went into a studio and recorded live drums was if I was working with a band who had a drummer. Otherwise, we relied yeah. on MIDI drums. Really what it did was it, it allowed a lot of solo artists to invest their time and their money in their portion of that, which was vocal recording, not having to hire a drummer, not having to you know, outsource and go to a, a big, you know, traditional recording studio where we had the space, uh, you know, in New York City, it's hard to come by the yeah. space to even record live drums. And we were able to put out albums worth of music that would have been, you know, maybe a few songs if they had to invest the time and budget into doing drums in, in a big studio. Yeah, the time and money aspect of it is a really important one. You know, you, you look at like a, a good horn sample library and it, it's not cheap. Like those yeah. are specialist things. They're expensive, but they're a hell of a lot cheaper than a horn section. Oh yeah. You can also reuse them. And so it makes it so that these sort of huge lush arrangements that you used to have to get like 40 people in a room to record, you can put together in your bedroom. And, you know, again, it's, it's easy to go off the rails with that. But it also puts a lot more power in the hands of people who have cool ideas instead of just people who have both cool ideas and a lot of money. Yeah, that is such a good point. I think one of the things and I, I don't want to I don't want to like my my thoughts to be sort of misconstrued when I was talking about limitations and stuff earlier. Like, I think one of the things that I really want to sort of talk about and get across here is the fact that I don't think there's really any. There's there's no point in putting qualitative value on a piece of artistic technology like Melodyne or like yeah. looping pedals or something like that, right? Like, like I, I think a lot of people, you know, who get upset at auto-tune or, you know, who get upset at MIDI guitars or whatever, their their anger is misplaced because the technology itself is is never the problem. The problem is always the implementation of the technology. And if you have somebody yeah. who has a strong creative vision, who, you know, understands their technology and implements it well, you get, you know, you know, that's that's when you get T-Pain doing auto-tune, right? Like that's an yeah. absolutely incredible sort of it it breathed fresh air into the pop scene at the time, uh, which was really incredible. Like, yeah. I think it's so easy for people to get mad at technology, but it's like you're, you know, it's almost the 99% invisible stuff where like you're only you're only getting mad at it 
because you you know it's done in a way that yeah. is drawing attention to it and you don't like that you probably have yeah. a thousand songs that you love and sing along to every day that use melodyne <laughs> yeah yes yeah, sideways has a video about autotune where he makes a similar point uh which sort of like complain about singers using autotune live and it's just like at this point Outside of like playing your local pub, everyone uses auto-tune live. Like any any major act that you see do any sort of performance is auto-tuning live because it just makes sure that everyone there gets as good a show as possible. It's not like the person, it's not like, again, it doesn't make them a good singer. It just makes them a little more consistent. And it's like a safety net for if that one note goes out of tune, you only get mad at it when you notice it, but... Like you say, everyone's doing it. Yeah, I think that the people who are using Autotune Live deserve a lot more credit for that than I think they get. It, yeah. it, it has a lot of, you know, uh, like, oh, I can't believe they're using Autotune Live. But like, try it. <laughs> try to use yeah. Autotune yeah. Live. <laughs> um, it, I mean, yeah. it is it is just an algorithm that is snapping you to the nearest note. And you can set the key... Yeah. You know, and and it, it it gets you better opportunities to be closer to the note you're intending to. But if you're live and you're singing, you have to be within fifty percent of the note you're aiming for for it to snap correctly. Yeah. There are so many such a such a risk that that can go wrong. A click track, you still need to be able to play to the click track, right? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, yeah. Click track is a great example. But yeah, I mean, one thing that I think. Mike mentioned when we were starting to talk about this and sort of came up earlier, but I think is also worth highlighting is genre differences. Yes. Yeah. In a lot of this, like we talked about jazz and like, I, I would imagine most people would agree that if while recording kind of blue, Miles Davis had decided to throw a heavy gated reverb on the drums, uh, it would sound worse. It would be the greatest album ever. You're right. Yeah. That's, I think the main thing he was missing, <laughs> Look, looking back, if I could give one note to uh, jazz legend Miles Davis, <laughs> uh, more gated reverb, please. But uh, mm. but no, like on the other hand, you look at '80s glam metal, and, and if there's not gated reverb on it, like if the snare just sounds dry, it's weird. Like yeah, it almost feels like it's it's wrong. Like it doesn't fit the genre. Yeah. Like the genre calls yeah. for it, like it's an effect the same way you you couldn't call, yeah. you know, a metal song with acoustic guitars as their main rhythm track. Would that still be metal? Or do we need those heavy driven electric guitars? So fun fact, uh, while I was working on my recent heaviness video, I did find an acoustic set by Megadeth. Nice. Um, That's rad. Which was really fun. Uh, and, it, you know, it still works. It still sounds metal. But, you know, you A-B test it with the original tracks. You can tell the difference. I'll just say that. But <laughs> yeah. it's cool because it is so weird to think of metal as being played in that sort of acoustic setting. Yeah, that is really interesting. And, and you know, talking about the, the genres thing, I think there's sort of two sides to it is one being certain genres accepting of these tools and and also uh, they utilize these tools in ways that it sort of defines the sound of the genre. Um, I mean, hip hop, which in some ways is a lot more spoken word than it is singing, uh, has adapted auto-tune even over rap verses where the the melody yeah. is not so much the, you know, the point of it. It's it's more in, you know, the structure and the timing. 
but autotune works and it's it's you hear it on uh, rap verses and it's part of the sound um pop music of course but uh then you take other genres singer songwriter type stuff and and I think I would agree there like I'm, I mean I'm very much for these tools I think that that's you know pretty obvious yeah. my stance there but um but I think <laughs> that it is important to to be true to what you're trying to make and also you know talk to your artists uh, you know when I if you're the producer on the project or the mixing engineer whatever it is and you throw auto-tune on you know, a track where there's a, you know, a vocalist and a piano, and that's that's the whole arrangement. Well, that's going to be really out of place for that genre, and the artist might not like that at all. Yeah. Unless it's Bon Iver. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it reminds me, there's this channel that I used to follow called Play the Mind. Used to do more music theory stuff. They sort of pivoted to piano tutorials, which wasn't as much my thing. But like when they were doing that, he sort of at one point presented this framework that I found really interesting, where he was sort of breaking music up into the the three archetypal genres of like uh, pop, jazz, and classical. It's a purposefully oversimplified model. But what he was getting at was this idea of like where the creative power comes from, hmm. where you have this these styles like classical where it really rests with the composer and the person who is deciding what the notes are going to be. And then you have styles like jazz where it's very much on the performer who's making all of these decisions and the actual like composition is a very bare bones thing that you then flesh out through your performance. And then you have styles like pop where a lot of that power rests with the producer and the engineer and all of these decisions that you make in the studio. I think obviously you're going to see a lot more acceptance of these more advanced and more, I'm going to use the word invasive, but I don't mean that as a value judgment, yeah. but more invasive, um, sound modification tools in styles that are more oriented towards creative power lying in the studio. Yeah. I actually think invasive is a really good term because when you think of other tools like compression or even, even EQ, I feel like yeah. those are more ways to control the recording in a way, you yeah. know, even just like the dynamics of something like there's dynamics in a vocal performance. Um, that come off of the singer and too much compression can flatten that out. But the way that you hear a singer in a room versus how a microphone will pick it up, compression can help make that sound a little like more what we hear. Yeah. And EQ too, I mean, it's, you know, same thing. It's, it's, it's more controlling the recording, but to go in and change pitch feels a bit more, like you said, invasive. It's, it's really yeah. changing the output of that person, like what came out of their mouth, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it is reimagining what it would have sounded yeah, like. Yeah. And it's sort of, and I know I keep citing like my college teachers here. It reminds me of another thing from one of my studio classes where like the instructor was sort of, and I, I don't know if this is his specific thing or a broader industry thing. I sort of suspect that it's more the latter, but he was sort of breaking these things down into tools versus effects where yeah. tools are things that make it sound better and effects are things that make it sound different. So like, you know, EQ versus distortion, mm -hmm. where there's no track that won't sound better with better EQ. There are a lot of tracks that would sound worse with distortion. <laughs> yeah. And obviously there are plenty of tracks that would sound worse if you did different EQ as well. Like more EQ isn't better. EQ is very specific, but. Yeah. Well, I mean, even just like the word EQ, yeah. it stands for equalize, right? We're just trying to balance yeah. out the recording, if the microphone was, you know, dark or, or yeah. your singer, you know, needs to pop through the mix, um, 
it is it's it's more corrective by name than it is a, yeah. an effect like distortion. I mean, EQ is so interesting, and it's probably too late in the episode to get dive into a a whole thing here. But it's it's so interesting too because there's the whole question of EQ on both ends, right? Like there's the EQing on the production end, and then there's also you know, especially with sort of modern listening technologies, the EQ on the listening end. Like I remember being a yeah. kid and sort of like having my first iPod and just going around in fiddling in the settings and discovering that you can you can change the way that things sound with the click of a button. And that was sort of a, I don't know, it was sort of a revelation for me that, you know, it, it was one of the first sort of chips in the wall of, so, something that Corey likes to say that I completely agree with is that you never listen to the same song twice, right? Like every time yeah. you listen to a song, both in terms of a sort of metaphysical personal way you're changed, but also just acoustics of the room, different sort oh, of yeah. ambient yeah. sound effects. And then like the EQing of the system that you're listening on is it's it's such a thing that impacts our listening that so few people put any thought into at all right you know like yeah. it's it's just something that's really it's really fascinating to me and i don't think it's the end of the world that more people aren't caring about their eqing their listening habits but it's <laughs> it's just interesting to think about <laughs> yeah i think to this day the the speakers in my car the bass is set to max because when i was a teenager i thought that was how you made music sound better <laughs> and I just I got so used to it that that's just how my car sounds. That's how the music in my car is supposed to sound. <laughs> and like at this point, changing it would make music I listen to in the car sound wrong, even if those exact same things when I listen to them in any other setting should sound less bassy. Right. <laughs> right. That's your car. That's that's how it sounds. You, you yeah. know it that way. Yeah. I used to be I was the one who would go into everyone's car and adjust their their sound system and <laughs> like all my were. friends you know my friends got a jeep and he turned the bass all the way up and i'd be like dude this is no this is not and I, of course i'd be i'd be playing my music that i wanted to show him you know and, and then the bass would be too high and he'd be like you're not hearing it how it's supposed to be you know, <laughs> when it was really my mix yeah. that was that was too bass heavy to begin with <laughs> <laughs> yeah did you have any other sort of like technological thoughts that you wanted to get in here mike as we're sort of approaching the end Hmm. Well, I think I think we covered obviously the vocal tuning. Um, I'm happy we talked a bit about about drum production. Another common one that that kind of draws a line in the sand between you know people either love it or hate it is um, recording guitars with virtual amplifiers. Um, and it, you know it's a lot of the same kind of yeah. same kind of arguments. Um, you know, I think some of the key takeaways that we've touched on here and, and at least like that I've kind of realized as we're talking is like some of it stems from things becoming easier that used to be hard. And yeah, uh, you know, I, I've seen this too, even with like, you know, I, I learned Photoshop fairly late in the game when, when it's been around for so long. And now there's AI that does things that I like just learned how to do myself. And I'm like, <laughs> but but now, you know, now it's a click of the button. Like, oh, I remember when I used to have to do this manually. And I don't think that it's strictly yeah. an age thing, but I do think that that's where some of the, the you know, resistance comes from. Yeah. There's a value on virtuosity that I think is 
you're hitting on a perennial ghost notes theme here. <laughs> you know, when, when drum machines came out, there was this idea that like, oh, now you don't need a good drummer. Right. And it's like, well, no, but you still need a good drum machine programmer. Like, oh, yeah. just putting in a basic boots and cats rhythm isn't going to sound any better than it would if you had a crappy drummer playing right. it. <laughs> like, this is still a thing that requires human thought and human input and human creativity. It just requires a different kind. The virtual amps one is really interesting to me as an example. Maybe your experience with this is different, but for me, as far as I can tell, the only people who care about that are guitarists and engineers. Yeah. Like... It's, it's one of those things where like auto-tune, auto-tune is a thing that most people have opinions about. Even people who don't know that what they actually have opinions about is Melodyne. Huh. That is very much a thing that people at least think they can tell by listening and have sort of structural like opinions about. Whereas at least in my experience, and again, yours might be different. I might be wrong. I might not be talking to the right people, but it seems like most casual music listeners, people who don't have any connection to the industry, don't even really know that virtual amps exist. And so like you have this huge contract, which is a real like huge controversy and huge fight in music production circles and music making circles that hasn't as much, I don't think, leaked out into the broader world. No, you're you're right. And and that's really interesting. My my initial thought would be, well, you know, maybe it's because everyone has a voice that they can, you know, at least relate yeah. to. But not everybody is a singer. I, I don't think it crosses over. But I I think the vocals are still very much the first thing people who don't listen to music with a musician's ear will listen for. I think it also just has has a lot to do with the fact that we are very used to processed guitars in one way or another. Yeah. Since mm. like the early 50s people have been experimenting with like overdrive and you know pedal boards yeah. and different amp setups and stuff like that like like you do hear clean guitar sounds but more often than not like there's there's a ton of sort of cultural weight around yeah guitars yeah. sound weird and different and guitars are you know you know it's part of the appeal of the guitar as an instrument and it's part of why the guitar you yeah. know had such a had yeah. such a run, you know, as the main instrument I mean, it's, is. It's called the electric guitar. Yeah, yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, like it's it's an instrument that just, it lends itself really well to messing around with sounds and coming up with cool stuff. And I think that there's, to people outside of the, um, to people outside of the guitar world, I think that, you know, a, a digital amp, you, you know, by, yeah. to their ear probably doesn't sound you know, you know, it's hard to differentiate between that and yeah. uh, someone that's just got a complex pedal board, right? Yeah, that and also just for a lot of people, so much of what happens between plucking a string and getting the guitar tone you actually get is kind of wizardry yes, anyway. exactly. Yeah. And whereas like what happens between me contracting my, I am blanking. What is the diaphragm? diaphragm wow <laughs> i am i have taken so much vocal tech yeah i was there gonna was, say there's no excuse for forgetting the word <laughs> anyway i just i just blanked it was on the tip of my tongue I, my brain was giving me epiglottis for some reason and that's a completely sure. different Excuses. part of the vocal tract but 12 tone is <laughs> over party fake i you know not not just as a singer but every almost everyone has a pretty intuitive understanding of what happens between pushing air up out of your lungs 
and yeah. the sound that a vocalist produces, even if they can't sing particularly well themselves. And and I think to that point, I also think that a lot of people also just just by sort of the nature of like percussion instruments, a lot of people also have a lot more of yeah. a natural sense, a, a, a sense of what a you yeah. know quote unquote natural drum kit sounds like because you know pe people yeah. have heard people banging on stuff basically right yeah. <laughs> yeah 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 that's that's a, i think yeah virtual drums are another area that gets maybe not as much pushback as auto tune yeah. but a very similar kind of pushback definitely yeah but i think even just the fact that uh, you know different genres um you know if you take like hip hop or house music they're they're using completely sampled drums and uh, you know the goal yeah. is not even necessarily to sound like a real drum set but percussion being you know just coming from different way, different places or different sounds, samples is a thing across genre that I think, you know, when people hear, like, I remember recording a band and, and telling my wife, like, those drums, like, they're, they're not real. We didn't record them. She's like, oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, didn't, didn't care at all. It wasn't even a thing. Yeah. We haven't touched on, uh, we yeah. haven't touched on virtual basses yet. Um, but no. <laughs> that's because nobody ever thinks about basses. I say as a bassist. <laughs> you know, bass is one of the only yeah. ones... So it's funny because we talk about MIDI drums, talk about virtual guitars. I will never use, and this could be because I'm a guitar player, but I'll never use MIDI guitars. I don't think we're there yet. I don't think those sound yeah. very good. I don't, I think I agree. I use them for like videos for the quick audio demonstrations. Yeah. But like years ago, I switched from doing all MIDI stuff for my song analyses to using stems. Oh, cool. And when I could find them. And the reason I did that was I was working on a video about uh, Chop Suey. And there is just no way to make that like frenetic, like alternating, like tremolo thing. Right. Sound like anything but hot garbage. <laughs> yeah. With MIDI guitars. Yep. Or certainly the ones that I had. I Maybe maybe someone with a much better set of like digital instruments and much more familiar with it could have made something that sounded passable. But like... It's just such a distinctive sound and it, it's partly like there's so many playing guitar is so physical, yeah, which is a weird thing to say, but like there's so many aspects of what exactly you are doing with your body that affect how a guitar sounds. Mm -hmm. And that, that's true of a lot of instruments. Like that's true of horns as well, but like, you know, and that's why like horns similarly, I think we're more there now than we used to be. But like when I was in college, digital horns were kind of a joke yeah yeah like they just they just weren't there and it was so clear that that was not a real trumpet i think i think one of the things with guitar is just the nature of the instrument there's a lot of really microtonal stuff in guitar right like there's a lot of yeah. tiny bends there's a lot of depends where on yeah. the fret you're you are fretting you know like there's there's so many it's not like like a piano where it's like you know you're hitting the note it's hitting the note, right? If the yeah, piano's yeah, in yeah. tune. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, even just like the harmonics that make up a chord, you know, how they interact yeah. with each other. Yeah, that's, yeah, I think a lot of it too, especially because you then run it through effects, like trying to get a distorted, trying to construct a sampled, a, a, a chord out of sampled distorted guitar <laughs> yeah. Yeah. loses all, all of the intermodulation uh, you would get 
and all of the complex interactions between those notes that happen when you play them all together as one unified chunk of sound and then run that through distortion. You can do that with a clean guitar and then distort it, but still. Whenever I think of MIDI guitar, like I just remember being a kid and like playing with the like default sound sets of GarageBand when, you know, I got my first yeah. computer and just like just that like harsh kind of like horn like meaty distorted guitar. Uh, yeah. It's 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 not a, it's not. I'm sure meaty guitars yeah. have gotten a lot better, but that's just when you say the phrase. That's just what my mind, my mind just hears, <laughs> you know, GarageBand's yeah. default sample set. Yeah, yeah. My yeah. brain goes to, man, this is going to, this is going to show my age, which I guess isn't too bad. Yeah, uh, I, my brain goes to Homestar Runner. I don't know if any of you remember the, the internet <laughs> oh, yeah. show yep. that was Homestar oh, Runner. Oh, yeah. And uh, uh, Strong Bad, Strong Bad Guitar. Yeah. Just that, that's what MIDI guitar sounds like to me. <laughs> <laughs> There's so many aspects of guitar touch, but like, you know, then that's also, you know, guitar is also, like we talked about earlier, just really interesting because there's so much technology around it. Like yeah. so much of being a guitarist in a lot of genres is thinking so deeply about your gear. Right. And so. And then that does it all matter at the end of the day? You know, I mean, the people who are the first to adapt the new technology are always young people to some degree. Yeah. And then at a certain point, that's just what becomes popular and that's what people get used to hearing and music moves on. Technology in some ways yeah. just, not to say it wins, but but it moves on and that becomes a sound that's acceptable, yeah. you know, for better or worse. I think wins is an interesting way to put it because it is definitely like, you know, pretty much every major advancement in musical technology in my lifetime. Yeah has experienced a pretty significant cultural pushback of some sort. Right. And, you know, we're we're in that right now, I think, with a lot of, like, AI music tools. And I have complicated feelings about AI musical tools. Like, yeah. that's a can of worms that's maybe not worth opening an hour into this. <laughs> but, like... Yeah, we've already talked it, on that at length yeah. once and not gotten all of our thoughts out, so... <laughs> yeah. I think there are unique ethical issues to that that didn't exist with prior music technologies, but also I think that it opens up a lot of really cool things. Like I use, for my videos, I use um, Isotope's music rebalancer to split out fake stems, yeah. to take a track and be like, just show me what the drums sound like. And like, I use that for for analysis, but you can also use that for... Sampling. Sampling, remixing. Mm -hmm. Like there's all these all these options that are opened up by having this tool that knows what drums sound like in a mix and can pull just that part out. Yeah. And, you know, there's a lot of stuff, cool stuff you can do with like timbre transfer, which is also an AI thing. And like, there's, there's all of these really cool tools that most of which I don't think are quite ready for prime time yet, but they're going to keep getting better. And, eventually the next generation of musicians is just going to be so used to it that a lot of these conversations won't make sense in the same way that like it feels silly to be like well no you can't record on multiple tracks right yeah like yeah that's not what it sounded like yeah and that's just always been that's always been the case i think you know wh whenever you or you know the audience whenever you get into music production the tools available to you those are the tools and I think there's a, yeah. there's a time period where those tools get better and new ones come out and you're open to it and receiving it. Um, 
but like from you know for me personally uh, and i think for all of us talking about multi-track recording like that that was always a thing we never thought differently about yeah. it um yeah. and i was young enough that when autotune came out it it wasn't i mean obviously it was it was groundbreaking and incredible yeah. but it wasn't so far outside of what i grew up using that i thought it was cheating or i thought it was crazy like it just seemed like the progression of things and i think that'll be true for yeah. You know, kind of probably forever. You know, as as long as technology yeah. continues to advance, and w whenever people get introduced to that technology, that's just that's how you make music, right? That's these are the tools. Yeah, and it sort of it comes in waves too, where like you have like these these periods where everyone is figuring out the best ways to use the next technology, like we had in the two thousands, where suddenly everyone was doing auto tune, and there was this period where that was just the sound. And everyone was getting used to that. And then I, I don't remember what the next thing was. You probably know better than I do, Mike. But like something else came along and everyone was like, oh, dang, we're going to do that now. Yeah, right. And so the, it's, you know, there's this period where it's this brand new thing and everyone's super excited about it. And then there's this period where it slowly becomes part of what the thing is until we, uh, what the sound is until we wait for the next big thing. Yeah. And like a lot of cool stuff happens in that period too, where people are finding new ways to use it and new ways to play around with it that didn't necessarily occur. Like, you know, the classic example that I always use on this is Jay Dilla, where like it took a while for someone for of, of drum machines being pretty popular and ubiquitous for someone to think to use them the way he did. And that goes like as far back as music technology has existed. It took a while for people to figure out overdrive and then that completely transformed how the guitar yeah. was used, right? Like No, I don't think so. <laughs> I, I think it's still the same. I'm <laughs> I've got some videos <laughs> that I should show you. <laughs> yeah, fair. I think I made at least one of them. So <laughs> at the end of the day, like I think the thing is the big thing that I wanted to sort of maybe my closing thought on this is that like all music is technology. Everything used to make music is a piece of technology. And most of them are pretty complex pieces of technology. Even an acoustic guitar yeah. in the grand scheme of things, that's a pretty complex piece of technology, right? So yeah. if you don't like, if you if you don't like the implementation of a piece of technology, I just I just want to you, you know encourage you to not think of that as an issue of the technology, but to think of it as an issue of yeah. the implementation because music, the, the entire history of music is nothing if not just the slow ongoing march of technological development. Yeah, I mean, I, I would push back on a technicality that I wouldn't describe the human body as technology. So yes. like yeah. a performance that was just live vocals and body percussion. Yeah, there's an argument to be made about vocals and percussion, yes. But I, that, that's not what you were saying. I just know someone's going to be listening to this and be like, er, I don't know about that. And so, yeah, just <laughs> throwing that out there that if you wanted to be pedantic about it, don't worry, I got you. But also the actual argument Noah was making, I completely agree <laughs> with. I appreciate that you're always here for the pedantry, Corey. I'm a music theorist. It's what <laughs> we do. All right. You got any any last thoughts, Mike, or uh, anywhere that people can find you if you want to shout out your stuff? Sure. Yeah. No, I mean, I, this has been such a, such a cool conversation. It's been a pleasure talking with you both. And I think a lot of these, a lot of these concepts have been things that I've said, uh, looking down the lens of a camera in a room by myself. So it was really nice to, 
have two other people who are, you know, as educated as the two of you are to, to just, you know, have a conversation with. It's been really fun. Thank you so much for having me on. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, it's been wonderful. This was, this was a lot of fun. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. And uh, I guess the yeah, other place to find me would just be my YouTube channel right now. Um, just It's just my name, Michael Worth, youtube.com slash Michael Worth. Yeah. And we'll put a link in the show notes. And the other place to find Mike is like behind the scenes of every Nebula original thing that you love. <laughs> yes, I do. I do run the show here. Also as a cameo in a surprising number of Patrick Willems videos. I am. So, yeah, I, I play a character you know, who uh, who loves milk. It's really, really funny. Loves cold milk. <laughs> yeah. The second time you came back, it just had a glass of like milk with ice in it. I, I lost my goddamn <laughs> mind. Yeah. If you've watched my Nebula class, you've you've seen stuff that Mike has worked on. That's right. Yeah. If you've watched my Nebula class, how? <laughs> but... Hey, maybe you'll make one in between the recording of this episode and the release of this episode. Get on it, Corey. I'm going to be get so on busy in that time. We can Noah. do it. We can do it. Let's get you on a plane. You have no idea how much work I have in November. How to put off the important work you need to do. Yeah. <laughs> how to take the wrong flight to your music conference. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Bye. Yeah, take care. Bye, everybody.